is the Acme Lowdown, a podcast series where we get the lowdown on the creative happenings here at Acme. Colleen, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with us today. And I wonder if you can recall your first encounter with the Alice in Wonderland stories and whether there was a character in particular that appealed to you. I think the first time, I was quite a small child and some, my aunt read it to me. And I think that uh, initially I really um, was amused a lot by the Cheshire Cat. Um, the idea of this cat up in the trees, you know, blowing smoke and asking Alice who she was was amusing to me. I don't know why, but I just liked it. Absolutely. I can understand why. It's one of my favourite characters also. Did, did you return back to the Alice stories after you were a child? Was it something that you kind of kept coming back to again and again? Or was it a, a, more a story that you kind of kept nostalgically away? I wasn't particularly obsessed with the story as, you know, as I was growing up. I was aware of it out there and you know there was there's always waves of things and I believe that uh, in school you revisit Alice a couple times in your school years and and so I had that connection with it but it wasn't like it was permanently on my shelf you know from childhood. Okay so then you go to landing a job I'm working on a film like Wonderland which which is a story and, and a set of characters really has become so prolific as you mentioned in popular culture and popular consciousness. What kind of preparation do you do as the, as the lead costume designer on a project like this? And, and I suppose part of my asking of that is how much did you engage with the previous interpretations of Alice of which there's been so many? I kept my visioning of Alice fairly separate from that. I can't say that I didn't, I didn't like systematically go through every Alice movie at all, but I did revisit both Lewis Carroll and Tennille's um, illustrations of Alice and sort of feel the characters through the really early um, interpretations of Alice. And then I, I felt, you know, being the generation I am, there was like a, a huge influence, I thought, in the audience that was going to see Alice from the Disney Alice cartoon, the animated Alice, because just because of the demographic of people and their familiarity with Alice in Wonderland, that, the, that a lot of the audience would be looking at it through those eyes. So I wanted to be familiar with that. And, you know, Tim and I talked about it a lot, like, what are we doing here with this and and how do we want to do it and and we just kind of came back to the idea of there's some things that are familiar in a story that you can connect with and the familiarity for me in Alice in this particular Alice was the blue dress we were playing with an Alice who was a little bit older than the illustrations felt but I took the idea of the color and made Alice's dress, her first dress, her entrance dress into the film, a nod to that dress. So right away there was a connection with that Alice. And from there on out, we were pretty much set free. The one thing that, that we were playing with a lot was the idea of Alice's shrinking and growing, and that in the book, conveniently, everything shrank and grew with her. But in our interpretation of it, Alice shrank and grew, so we kind of cheated at 
The clothes stayed the same, so pieces of the clothes became clothes underneath layers, which was a, you know, was a fun challenge for the character. And it also gave her, you know, some different looks besides the Alice dress. And, and, and that kind of working together, I mean, you mentioned working closely with Tim, and I, and I, I imagine that a partnership like that is, is so energetic and so dynamic, and, or how much of it is a kind of, a, you know, a round table of all the creative and artistic heads sitting together to come up with the, the kind of character traits, I suppose, that you want to achieve on screen. Um, could you talk us through that process a little bit and, and how that works? I suppose from your perspective from costume design, but, but that kind of, that multidisciplinary approach? Well, in this case with Alice, it's always different on every project. And because I have a, a, a long-standing relationship with Tim um, in the, a creative way, it's basically he and I that talk about the characters. And I go to him with my ideas, with, with images, with boards, with textiles. And he looks at it and, and sort of gets excited about it and says, yeah, I like that one, like, you know, this is great. And kind of does his edit on what I brought to the table and then tells me a few little kind of nuggety ideas he has about the character. It isn't really a, a conversation with a lot of people. In a sort of CG way, you know, you get a lot of art from illustrators in the beginning because they start way before you start as a costume designer kind of conceptualizing the world and as it went along um, Tim would show them to me and go I like this but don't do that it's like you know it's not what I want so it, it becomes very much between he and I and how we kind of figure it out together more than a sort of committee um, design project. And is there then an influence that happens once um, once the actors come into play also? You know, I'm thinking about about Johnny Depp and the Hatter and, and how much was truly realised from those first iterations of the design and then then obviously he, he put the costume on and was, was there a kind of much change or, or um, recasting of the costume once he started to kind of wear it, I guess, or does it all sort of fall into place? I think that that question's a question that's, that's so fluid. Um, in this particular case, obviously we knew the hatter had a hat. We, we knew we weren't quite sure entirely what he would look like, but both Johnny and Tim had an idea for the red hair and the, the hatter kind of vibe. But when I did my first fitting with Johnny, I took a lot of different pieces, and we sort of played with the pieces and put them on different jacket shapes, different waistcoat shapes, different trousers, different hats, and we realized little things for him because he, in the script he came from being a hat maker, which you know, as somebody that has a lot of little tools and I combine them in the costume. And Johnny really embraced that side of the character, that sort of making side, and really loved all those elements. So I did the bandolero with the threads and I did, you know, all those accessories that you see on the costume, along with taking the colors of happiness of Millerney and making them, you know, part of his costume, little kind of pattern things. We did a lot of textile work on his clothes that were pieces of material sewn onto other pieces of material that's fairly subtle, but it gives it more texture and a little bit more life on camera. And 
as we're doing the first fitting, we suddenly realize, you know, we can't tell which hat we want without the wig. So it spun into this whole two days later, a whole thing with hair and makeup and just kind of the character really came together like that. Tim wasn't at the first fitting, but Tim came to the second fitting and, you know, weighed in on the character and the look of the hatter. And, and that's sort of how he came to be in the story. I mean, he is a totally original presence, Johnny. When you bring him things, he takes it on in a really exciting way. And in the room, you're you're kind of all laughing and putting them on and realizing you can see it, even though it's rough, you can see where you're going to yeah. go with it. Which, I mean, at, you know, as an audience, that translates so richly on the screen. He, he completely and utterly embodies the Hatter. And I suppose one of the things that that, that character achieves, but but very much all of them, I guess, and, and this is one of, you know, one of the brilliant strokes not only of, of the Burden Productions, but the stories themselves and possibly why they've, you know, sustained the sense of timelessness that they have is that they, they managed to straddle this kind of fairy tale-like whimsy, which, was, which is so appealing to children. But there's also that kind of sophisticated, darker side that's, that's also very appealing for adults. And I wonder how much of this kind of fine balance between the light and the dark and the kind of the whimsy and the, and the sophistication you needed to achieve through the costume, you know, was it something that you, you, that you paid attention to in, in the costume design? Not really consciously. I don't think, first of all, I think it's a misconception that children are not compelled by the dark. The sort of idea of darkness was not an idea that we kind of even embraced or thought about with the character of anybody really in the hat or other than the Red Queen mm. being scary and that sort of thing. But, but in that sense of intellectualizing about that, it wasn't really a place that we went. Working, I guess, in, in a kind of, in a, in a melding of live action and, and CG, could you talk us a, a, a little, tell us a little bit about how that works from a process perspective um, and whether that makes a difference to, to a film that you might work, which is a straight live action film in, in the costume design of it, or whether the process changes at all or not at all? Well, when you go into the CG world, there's certain, you know, if you're using a heavy blue screen, you don't use a heavy blue color in front of it. There's those restrictions. But there's also a lot of things you can come up with. For instance, I think the best kind of illustration of that in, in that particular movie is the Red Queen's costume. Because her head grew, her neck had stayed the same size. I mean, they didn't grow her neck, they grew her head. So what I had to do is create a longer neck for her through her costume. So instead of her bodice starting where it would normally start above, kind of straight across at your armpit level, I cheated down the neckline of the dress two or three inches so the length between the bottom of her face when her head grew and the top of her bodice was a normal perspective instead of looking like this giant head was just plonked on to the little body. Also to help that sell, I did on the sides of the bodice is black velvet, which helps shave in the waist because her waist is extremely almost ant-like, you know, shaved in before the skirt kicks out at the bottom. So using those devices at that point in history with the technology that we were working with is, you know, one of the sort of technical sides of, of compensation for CG that you do have to embrace sometimes on film. I mean, 
On the other hand, if you have a huge cape and you want it to fly, you could make a small cape and they extend it. There's so many things that are helpful, but sometimes it's a puzzle that gets solved together. And every job I have, it's changing so quickly, the ability, the people doing it change on what they want, that it's a continual curve to see you know, where you're gonna go with it. Thinking back to something that you mentioned er earlier on, and, and I wonder if you know, the idea of, of bringing Alice to life um, on screen for contemporary audiences and almost, you know, a, a new generation of viewers, but particularly of young girls. Was there a sense of kind of looking at Alice's character and broadening out or emboldening particular aspects of her? I mean, we celebrate her as a kind of curious, strong, assertive, intelligent young girl who really has become, I mean certainly in the fashion world, she's had an enormous impact, but was there a sense for this production that, that you would, um, I suppose, amplify out certain parts of her character or, or imprint her in another way for a kind of contemporary audience? Well, I think you just said it. I mean, it's basically the fact that in the parameters of, of our understanding of what those freedoms are today and what they were when Lewis Carroll wrote the book are not dissimilar. It's just that the the world has changed a lot, not enough, but it's changed a lot for young girls as far as choosing things that are not necessarily expected of them. And I think that the that in this Alice, the fact she goes off to be captain of a ship and, you know, there's so many things in it about Alice deciding what she's doing instead of doing what other people decide for her that I think resonates with the modern kids and adults. Absolutely. And I suppose just as a final question, was there one character more than any other that, that, you, that you loved the most in terms of the costume design that you achieved? It's a very hard question, I know, because it's full of richness across all of them. There's such a, you know, the big four, such a group, you know, and the Tweedles and Weird Stain and the Red Queen is like a whole other ball of wax. But, of course, the lovable character, I guess the two main characters that you can't really take your mind off of when, when you read it are, are the Hatter and Alice. I mean, that's the relationship, and that's the the sort of wonder of Alice in Wonderland. So I guess I would have to say them if I were choosing. I, I would have to say that they're my two too. <laughs> well, I, th I think that's all for us today. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We are so excited to be celebrating Alice on screen and in particular your involvement with, th with this most recent project. It's really such a privilege to be able to capture your voice and your role in the production of it. So I want to thank you again. Well, thank you for including me. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.